Welcome to Amplify, the personal brand entrepreneur show. Today on the show, Bob is speaking with Will Sampson. We live in a world of interdependence. From the moment we wake up till we go to bed and even throughout the night, we have a mutual dependency on a whole variety of people that we don't even know. The people who keep the electricity running, the people who are working at data centers that are making the internet connection you and I are working on right now. And so I really encourage people to look around and say, how do I find a network of people who love me and believe in me in ways that maybe I don't myself yet so I can grow that? Hi there, and welcome back to the Personal Brand Business Show. My name is Bob Gentle, and every week I speak with incredible people who share their secrets to building, marketing, and monetizing their expertise, intentionally growing a unique personal brand and the mindset you need for your business to grow and thrive. If you're new to the show, then while you still have your device in your hand, take a second to subscribe. That way you won't miss a single episode. And if you are a regular listener, then consider sharing this show with just one person. It's the very best way you can help the show grow and help me reach more people. So one thing listeners will be used to hearing me speak about is the importance of personal growth leading business growth. Your business will not grow until you grow. And if it does grow without your growth, it's a recipe for problems. Alongside that, you will never find success alone. Both of these are very important themes for this week's guest, Will Sampson. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So glad to be here. So I've been looking forward to speaking to you because this often comes up with lots of podcast guests. They always tell me that the personal journey, their growth has been in parallel with the business. And I've rarely spoken to an entrepreneur who's very successful that won't have the humility to say they were not the person today that they were at the beginning of the journey. And the person that they were at the beginning of your journey would destroy the business that they have today. So I know that this is really your thing. But for the listener who maybe doesn't know much about Will Sampson, could you maybe just start with telling us a little bit about who you are, where you are, and the kind of work you do? Yes, gladly. So I have the good fortune of working with a combination of, of corporate clients and individual clients, uh, both doing helping large organizations manage cultural change and then helping individuals <clears throat> go through personal change as a, as a life and executive coach. That wasn't always what I was going to be in life. And so um, I was an entrepreneur early in, my, early in my life and was one of those individuals who was a victim of the dot-com bust. So I've always kind of lived, I've tried to live a life of service and in the 90s, I had a business which was oriented toward, um, really, today we would think of it as, a, as almost software as a service or an application um, service portal. But we were aggregating services for nonprofits because often nonprofits start with the best of motives, but they don't really have the skills necessarily to, uh, to, to do all the work that's required and all the different roles that are required for a nonprofit to be successful without the profit motive. And so I had built a portal that I was very excited about. And, and we had, you know, we got on a plane coming back from the from San Francisco, from Silicon Valley with with a promise of funding. And this was after several years of blood, sweat and tears. And we had drained our bank accounts and everything. It was it was the dot com dream. And then it all died. We, 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 we had an offer letter. We literally were holding the offer letter as we boarded the plane and then Two weeks later, after you know, two weeks, three weeks, we hadn't heard back from this particular venture capitalist. 
and we kept going. And eventually, by the time we realized that the offer was not going to come through, the, the wheels had really fall, fallen off. And it was time to go back into corporate life, time to go back into the quote unquote real jobs, which I did. And I, I spent several years, my background was in technology. So I spent several years um, working in the tech space. I went and got a, a PhD and taught for a number of years, which was very noble. And I love that work, but it, it, isn't, uh, it isn't always the most lucrative position. And so I went back into corporate uh, organizational change work. But really always feeling this aching because I because I knew that there was um, so much more that I could be doing that perhaps I should be doing, certainly what my purpose was calling me toward. And I couldn't really find that. And it wasn't until my life had another crash, which was three years ago. So as I got more and more frustrated, I became more and more connected to other ways of coping, which in my case was alcohol. I had a big life crash around that around that and had to go into long-term recovery. And so suddenly I found myself at, in my mid fifties, having to, having to find inspiration for what the rest of my life was going to look like. And when you Google like entrepreneurs who started over in life, you'll hear all these great stories of people who were 29 or 31 or 32 and not so many when of people when they were 55. And so what I came to realize in all that, Bob, is that my, that's my journey, but I'm not alone. There are a lot of people who have a sense that their life could be about so much more. Their business could be so much rich, richer uh, in, in terms of quality of experience. And they've really traded that in for, for a set of false narratives that are keeping them stuck in place. And so I've committed the rest of my life to helping people become unstuck. I do that. I still do a lot of organizational change work uh, with large organizations. What I tend to do is around tech acquisitions. So that's that's the bulk of my work. But then I'm increasingly getting to coach executives and individuals who recognize that their life could be more and they they want to guide for that process. And so I get to do that. I think what's interesting listening to you is you've had a lot of, a lot of opportunities to just say, you know what? I'll just go back to normal, a normal, what, what many people would call a normal life. I'll just get a job. I'll just suck it up. I'll stay the course. But feeling called to do something, it's very hard to actually just sit back and, and do that. So I recognize that. Thank you. Something you mentioned was helping people who are stuck. And I think this was kind of what triggered mentioning that because I meet a lot of people that I would say are stuck. And there's a sense of helplessness a lot of the time around that, that they just think, well, this is how it is. I've reached, and I, honestly, I don't think it matters what age you are. When you're 25, you think your life is nearly over. When you're 55, you think right. your life is nearly over. The truth is, when you're 55, you've still got a long time to go. When you're 25, you have everything open to you, but that doesn't matter. It's a little bit like a depression, I guess. When you're experiencing true depression, you don't know that you have true depression. But what we all know is there is a way through depression. There's a way through being stuck. What's the difference between the person who feels called to do something and the person who simply settles and rolls over and accepts being stuck? I think it's two things. It's a combination of the stories we ask, our, the stories we tell ourselves and the questions we ask ourselves. So I'll, I'll illustrate that. I've got a friend who 
is around my age. And this particular individual, we were talking not that long ago. Um, so, you know, mid to late fifties, and we were talking not that long ago, and they were talking about the fact that they were going to be buying a new house. And they wanted to be sure that the house had a master bedroom on the first floor for that time when they would have difficulty climbing steps. And <laughs> my first thought was, oh my goodness, for the love of all that's holy, like you can't, you can't already in your 50s be worried about whether you're going to be able to climb steps. But we've, it's true, especially in the United States context, but I think this is, this is true globally as well, that there's this idea, well, you, you work hard in the corporation and then eventually you get to a place where you retire or you get to a place where you've sort of reached coasting speed. And, and, and we're encouraged to tell those stories to ourselves by all the people who want to sell us life insurance, reverse mortgages, <laughs> condos by the beach. You know, so, so there's a whole sort of culture industry to sell us this story that, that, that there's this model for when and where we do the things we do. But I think it's also true that it, it has to do with the, we, we often are stuck because of the questions we ask ourselves. And we, we often ask ourselves, you know, why can't I do that? Or why is this the safe choice for me? One of the great, I've often said that I had, I had a real advantage of having a life crash in my fifties because I didn't really have the option of taking the long road. Now, I do think I'm going to be around for many, many decades on this planet. But, you know, when you, when you come to that point of crisis, it's kind of, I don't know if you know the work of Viktor Frankl, but Frankl says that when we, when we get to a situation where we can't change it, we have to change ourselves. And so the question became, instead of, instead of the questions I was asking myself being things like, you know, why do I need to stick in this traditional role? Why do I need to stay the course? I began to ask, you know, what kind of person, how do I change my identity to be the kind of person that I think the universe is calling me to be? That's the question that I would really like to lean into, because I think this whole question of identity is really important. For a lot of people, identity is fixed. It's quite concrete. And when they do meet a crisis, right. it becomes a crisis because of that concrete identity. I guess if you can be gymnastic with your identity, actually the opportunities available to you are diverse. So how do you work with somebody to try and make that identity a little bit more elastic to make it perhaps something that you shape and you create rather than something that you inherited through, mm -hmm. through life and adolescence and yeah. external factors? Well, this is part of what I work with my coaching clients on this, this four-step process of transformation, which is it starts in the head. So we think, well, there's a thing I want to change. There's a thing I want to be different in my life. And often in the personal growth literature, we, we move from thinking to doing. So we say, well, you want to change this, therefore do this. So, you know, the typical example is you, I'm working with a client or a coach would be working with a client and that client would say, well, I really want to have a regular routine of exercising. So the coach would say, great. Well, what you need to do is put your, put your gym clothes on before you go to bed and then put your shoes by the door. And Two, three weeks later, four weeks later, they fall off. It doesn't, it's not a habit that they hold on to. And my belief is that that habit, and there seems to be some really strong scientific research behind this. Plus, I can tell you it's true. That, that, that you're talking about me right there. That specific example <laughs> is 100% me. 
Well, and it's often because we didn't create a new identity to go to precede the habit. There's some great research. It was published in the United States in the Washington Post, which is where I read it, but it's actually published in the National Institutes of Health, which is the American sort of health agency, that the way you identify yourself has a strong impact on what you do with that thing. And so I believe the article was something like why you should call yourself an athlete. And I'm, I'm, I'll ha- I'm happy to send you the article, but it turns out that even people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s who describe themselves as athletes were more likely to go to the gym regularly. They were more likely to set and meet goals around their exercise. They were more likely to you know, do the things, do, do the, that kind of health and fitness work that we often admire. And so I think habits are critical and I, hopefully we'll get a little we'll get some time to talk about habit stacks as well. Cause that's a, I think that's a big part of this journey, but I find for myself and, and certainly working with clients that we move from contemplation to identity, which is this sort of half space between the head and the heart, right? Identity is when we begin to tell ourselves I'm this thing. You know, when I'm working with, with younger individuals, I, I really encourage them to describe themselves as an entrepreneur Because entrepreneurs do certain things, they think certain ways. And so it's that identity. And it's much easier to put together your pitch deck, to to write that proposal, whatever it is, when you think you're an entrepreneur, than when you think it's your quote unquote side hustle, which is is often. So one of the reasons why side hustles, hustles don't often work for individuals is because they didn't really claim a new identity. It's just a thing that they do off to the side. And so it's easy for the mind to forget about it. So thinking, being, doing, and then that creates a success loop where you then can grow and then say, okay, um, now I'm going to go back to my brain. What else do I want to change? What else, where else do I want to grow? That makes perfect sense. And I'm, I'm wondering, I'm thinking of people who have popped up in my life where I've known there's just so much potential there, but the potential often feels completely untapped. Yeah. And that process would work perfectly once they had embraced the idea of that version of themselves. But getting them to the point of even owning that idea is extremely challenging. What needs to be a precursor to that is the permission to have a little bit of fantasy and what could it be, and not what I would call sort of almost limiting yourself through what you assume is possible or what's normal. There's this whole idea of if you can dream it, you can achieve it. In, a, in many respects, that's a hell of a cliche. Right. But if it never begins with a dream, it will never happen. Right. How do you work people through this idea of sculpting the vision that they have for themselves in order that they can then crystallize that into a realistic identity for themselves? Yeah. The, the process that I use is really helping people connect their past stories to their present world. I mean that more than just simply their present state, but we are, as humans, we're just a collection of stories. <laughs> That's, you know, there are certain things that are historically true. There are certain things that are scientifically true, but most of what's happening in our head is a narrative that we choose to tell ourselves. And it's comprised of a set of narratives and a set of experiences that have happened to us. And so often in my own journey, working with individuals, looking back, we can find these amazing signposts 
to what we're being called to be in the universe. I have, I have this earliest memory. My, my parents ran a bookstore on the side and I was six years old and, and I remember counting out change and just this feeling, like I remember feeling, oh, I really was helpful to my dad who was back in the back, I think looking for a book for somebody. And I was able to ring this person up and count out their change. And thankfully there was another adult to make sure I got the change right. But like, I can go back to my earliest stories and think, oh, that makes sense that I'm someone who wants to kind of, kind of help people that that service is knitted into my soul and it's deep in my bones. But then I also encourage people to really look around them. This is where the idea of interdependence becomes so important. You know, if we live in a current global society, we live in a world of interdependence. From the moment we wake up till we go to bed and even throughout the night, we are dependent. We have a mutual dependency on a whole variety of people that we don't even know. The people who keep the electricity running, the people who are you know, working at data centers that are making the internet connection you and I are working on right now uh, possible. And so I really encourage people to look around and say, how do I find a network of people who love me and believe in me in ways that maybe I don't myself yet until I, so I can grow that. And, you know, we're often fearful in modern culture of codependency and it's a real fear. I mean, unnatural need for another person is is a kind of pathology, but I think it's equally pathological to believe in a false kind of independence that we don't need anybody else. We got this. I, I'm, I'm my own person. Um, and I see this in stories of entrepreneurs. I'll, I'll be listening to a podcast and um, this was a couple months ago, but interviewing this, this, uh, you know, 30 something entrepreneur and the interviewer said, you know, why did you feel like you needed to go out and, and take over the world as if, you know, it was his mythic journey. And he said, well, you know, I was so alone when I was young because my mom was out working two jobs. And my first thought was, wow, that's amazing. You had a mom who worked two jobs. So you had a roof over your head and food to eat and all that, you know, peel back the layers and we will very quickly find other people that helped us get to where we are. So when, when we get to that place where we find we're stuck, you know, we need to sort of map backwards what got us here and then map vertically horizontally, forgive me, map horizontally and say, who's in my world that is just anxious to just show me love and belief until I can create that for myself in this particular area? And then how can I show them love and belief back so it's reciprocal? It's, it's really interesting you talk about that. I guess for the listener, why are we talking about this? This is probably an important point to kind of just take a moment and understand the thing with a personal brand, and this is the personal brand business show. So this is why I'm bringing this up right now, is a personal brand is the story that other people have about us in their own head. And when you are leaning into this personal brand, you're cultivating and amplifying those stories. But you get to choose what those stories are. You get to choose if those are stories that are heroic and exciting. And you get to choose if those are stories of weakness and challenge. But you're in control of the stories that you tell yourself, and by extension, the stories that you tell about other people. The stories that you tell yourself are so important. I know from my own experience, I found it very difficult to be visible in any way online for a long time. We're talking a decade. No content from me whatsoever. And I had to really understand, why is that? And a friend of mine who is very active in the content space told me about his journey. 
and he said the thing that changed the game for him was keeping a journal about the nice things people said about him. And one week of that, you would not believe the difference that made. There's a negativity bias about the information that we will take in about ourselves. We take all the feedback, all the criticism, that that there is no survival imperative in taking hold of the positive things people say about us. So we filter it out. It's not helpful. But in this situation, it's incredibly helpful when you want to understand the value in your identity in order that you can amplify that. And that's why we're talking about this, dear listener. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I resonate so strongly with that. You know, I've often said that being a person in long-term recovery is in some ways kind of a superpower because it, it gives me not just an identity, but it, it, it gives me an important identity marker because I remember that there is actually something that I need to be afraid of today. But once I settle that, you know, our, our brains are ev- evolutionarily wired to be afraid of things. And the whole world is out there telling us to be afraid of things. And of course, our past traumas and our past narratives keep popping up, reminding us to be afraid of things. But I find in, in my personal story that when I can own the fact that there is this one thing I'm, I'm afraid of, I can be free to be unafraid of every, everything else in the world. And that then becomes a, a key part of my brand um, and a key part of the way I present myself in, to the world. It certainly has proven to be true that there's some marketing value in talking about things like interdependence, but I can talk about them deeply and authentically because that's how I do what I do. I mean, I, I literally, you know, I run three masterminds every week of people that I just, that I have this mutual dependence on. We, I share what's happening in my life. They share what's happening in their life. We talk about how we can support each other. And it's the secret of my success. So I'm, I'm delighted that it's also part of my public brand. One of the questions I ask most of my podcast guests is opportunity. And the listener will be quite accustomed to me asking this. Opportunity comes through outbound sales activity, the old-fashioned hustle and grind. It can come through content and content marketing and people discovering us through that. It can come through paid content and ads, or it can come through relationships, referrals, that kind of thing. And it doesn't seem to matter who I speak to. They'll they'll often have all four covered off to an extent, but in almost every case, the opportunities that moved the dial for them were almost always through relationships. And I would go so far as to say almost every opportunity comes through relationships in one way or another. And whether that's an opportunity to find new insight, new opportunities, new revenue streams, new ideas, we don't exist as individual human beings. Can you imagine a a universe where you could never interact with other people? Just imagine for a moment we were locked in. That's a, a terrible thing. But it's an interesting thought experiment. It just shows how dependent we are on other people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we live in these relationships. And I think one of the great myths, one of the things that I try to do in my work is create a real clear line of delineation between self-help and personal growth. Yeah. So the self-help has been around. It's actually, um, it was a Scottish guy named Samuel Smiles who wrote the book Self-Help in 1854. That's where we got the term from. And it came at a particular time when the whole world was changing. People were moving from rural to urban environments, uh, you know, family structures, work structures, everything was being upset. And there was this vision of this moral individual who was perfectly self-sufficient. 
And so we, we keep promoting some version of that, of that story through our self-help narrative. But the, it seems to me that the, or the literature the, or the data, I mean, seems to indicate that the more we promote that idea, it doesn't seem to correlate with better outcomes. You know, there's no correlation between these two, but the reality is that we spend more and more on self-help every year. And the World Health Organization says we're becoming more depressed every year. So this, this atomistic kind of individual in, human is not going to be successful because it's not, it's not how we're wired. We were wired as communal people. So knowing this as entrepreneurs, what's a different vision of interdependence from your perspective? How can we yeah. move from this idea of the entrepreneur that needs to be entirely self-contained and working towards this kind of Adonis vision of what a business owner is supposed to be right. and something that's a little bit more human? Yeah. I think we move from the single named performer to the band. So we move from, I don't know, Cher to the Beatles. <laughs> so, you know, when we think about these single performers, we think, well, that that's the person I'm going to see, or even people, you know, Billy Joel, who I loved growing up, I'm going to go see Billy Joel. That's great. And, and I'm, because I was enough of a fan, I may have known some about a little bit about his background band, but really you're there to see Billy Joel or Elton John or whomever. But when you went to see the Beatles, I, I didn't, I wasn't old enough, but, but, you know, looking back, maybe, maybe Paul's going to sing one song and then John's going to sing another. And then who knows, George is going to show up and sing my sweet Lord or whatever, you know? So, so I think that's, we move to a different metaphor and we think about ourselves as people who play each other's songs. Like we think about ourselves as, as working together on, on the ideas that we're working on to help make the world a better place to create great companies all that. And, you know, we've been talking about this idea for a long time. I remember even in the 90s, we talked about coopetition. That was the big, one of the big things that came out of Yale Business School was this idea of coopetition. But it's, it really just, to, in my view, it comes down to a, to a mindset and whether you believe there is sufficient space in the market for all great ideas. And if you believe that, then you can throw in with all kinds of people. I've got a friend right now who's an entrepreneur and the reality is we're both developing products that are quite similar. We still hang out. We, we don't hang out every week, but we hang out once a month or so to talk and to share. I, I've got an AI person that I put him onto rather than say, oh, that's my AI person. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going to share him with this guy. I thought, no, the world is a beautiful, bounteous place. And the more seeds I put in the ground, the more is going to grow for me. So I, th I think the answer is creating a different metaphor. Now, there's some practical ways to do it as well. And that's where like, I build masterminds for that exact reason. I think that's, I build masterminds of entrepreneurs because I think that's another way to do it. And there are different communities, even you know something as simple as a Facebook group, but just finding ways to be you know, creating a team of people that you're a part of, even if they're working in different companies, starting even seemingly competing products, you know, we have to believe the world's big enough that, that all of the great products will, will succeed. I think that's especially true when you're looking at moving to bring your business online. If you're actually leaning into content and showing up online, there are seven, we just passed the 7 billion mark on this planet. That's more than enough opportunity for everybody. I mean, I don't know how many clients you need to be incredibly successful, but I'll bet it's not even 70. 
Right. It's, it's definitely not 7 billion. Yes. No. So you're absolutely right. And I think something that I'm finding increasingly true as well is nobody's a forever client. I might be the right person to support somebody today. And I am supportive of that tomorrow. That might be you. Right. And what goes around will come around. Right. I'm certainly finding that a lot that in my circle, there's a season where it makes sense for people to work with me. And then it makes sense for them to move on to somebody else for a different part of their journey. Mm -hmm. And I celebrate that. Absolutely. But that's very different from when you're working in a very small local business community and, and you're not really connected with the wider world. That interconnectedness is equally important Absolutely. online in terms of the content space as well. Yeah. That you'll be able to specialize more and be much more open if you've spent time building that visibility and that network online as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The term that comes to mind as you're talking about is global. So that combination of global and local. And I, I think that's really how we, um, I think that's how we do this and how we build new entrepreneurial ecosystems, how we build new brands that are resilient th throughout the life of our business, throughout the life of our clients. We're, we're able to continue to show up for different clients at different stages in their life mm. by being connected both locally and globally. I have a group of entrepreneurs I'm going to be in Dubai with in November. I also go and hang out with entrepreneurs most weeks, Tuesday morning here in my town. So it's that combination of those two. So one of the things you mentioned earlier on was habit stacking. And I think a lot of people will recognize, okay, I've maybe got a vision for a future me. Right. And now I know, okay, that identity makes sense to me. I can, I can live in that space. But to actually step into that space and make it real, it does need action and action over time becomes reality. Right. How can you make that action stick a little better? You bet. Yeah. And it always starts with a keystone habit. So I'll tell you my own story of habit stacking and how I came to have a fairly robust daily habit stack. So I entered into recovery just as COVID was starting or a couple months ahead of COVID. And here in the United States, everything, and, and I, I know it did in Britain as well, everything shut down. And so there were no in-person meetings. And so those of us that were interested in meeting with other people and, and sharing our journey needed to figure out a way to do it online. And thankfully, I had been working with Zoom for a number of years before that. And so I said, hey, there's this product, it's called Zoom. Like now it seems crazy that nobody would have heard of Zoom, but hey, there's this product called Zoom. We can create an online meeting and uh, I'd be happy to help run that. And I did. And, and so fast forward about a year later, and I was going through a little bit of self-sabotage, living in some negative narratives, like I never do anything I tell myself, right? Even though my business was starting to grow, there were just some personal things that I wanted, to, some personal habits I wanted to have true in my life that weren't. And so I was kind of beating myself up. You never do anything you say you're going to do. And then I, I was, I became honest with myself and said, no, in fact, you've been doing this thing every day for a year. Well, what could you stack around it? Well, you could go to the gym before that morning meeting. Great. So now, now I've got this uh, identity of a person in long-term recovery. I'm going to do the things that I need to do. Well, then I said, okay, I'm going to start to think of myself as an athlete. And I built a uh, over the next two months after that, I built a framework of going to the gym every day. Then I said, okay, what else? And so, you know, I, I included intermittent fasting. I've got some journaling, some meditation, some things in my daily habit stack. 
but they all revolve or they're held together by that keystone habit, that thing that is, uh, is going to be true for me every day. And that's really, I'm not preaching anything other than what James Clear in his book, Atomic Habits has, has spoken of, um, BJ Fogg's Tiny Habits. So, so, you know, there's a lot of information out there, but for me, I will go back to what I mentioned earlier. For me, the big difference maker was not the not the trying to take on the habits, but really taking on that identity of the person who does those things. Yeah. When I think of myself as an athlete, when I think of myself as someone who is fit in terms of nutrition, the habits are easier to 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 do because that's what people who are like me do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think yes. People like James Clear have written books about these things. But the problem is, in books like that, a lot of people can't see the wood for the trees. And a lot of people are very busy. And a lot of people make a lot of money out of making things very complicated. And the way you describe it makes it very simple and doable. And this is the thing. is People are willing to do things if they can see a way through that it's going to work. They're not going to do things just because everybody says how good James Clear's book is. there needs to be a payoff. And I think what you described there, people can easily see, okay, I I can see where the payoff is here. I can see how I can move from being an identity that doesn't fulfill me now to an identity that I can embrace and uh, respect and celebrate. And that's a journey worth taking. And for me, that's the thing. People will do hard things if they can see the journey is going to be worth it. And they're not going to be left feeling even more disappointed because of having failed again. Absolutely. The kind of masterminds you describe, I'm curious to know, are they commercial masterminds? Are they sort of part of your business or are they something that you do for fun? Fun's uh, a wrong word. I know that. No, no, no that's, that's a great question. Uh, are they, I don't, um, the best way to answer your question is I don't charge for people to be a part of my mastermind, masterminds because I'm getting as much out of it as they are. Yeah. Now, eventually, I, I actually, that's part of where my business is growing is to run maybe a more commercial model of it. But, um, you know, coming out of the tech space as I do, I was, I've been involved in the conversation around agile development, uh, which has been true in, in tech since the 90s. And so I just take a very agile approach to these masterminds. I know some people overcomplicate them and create these. <laughs> For us, it's just three basic questions, you know. What have you worked on since the last time we were together? What are you going to work on between now and next week or the next time we're to get together? And then how can the group help you? So it's a real simple, that's, that's um, one of the principles that I get from agile software development is just look, you know, because we agile came about because often we would create these overcomplicated project plans in our corporations. And then we get six months, eight months into it. And we're so far gone that the only way to do it is to just scrap all the plans and start over again. Agile development said, okay, we're always moving. We're always changing. Let's, let's keep a true North star, but then let's, you know, develop as we can toward that North star. Um, and so that's the process that I use for my masterminds. It's just a real simple, what, what did you get done? What are you going to get done? How can the group help you? Yeah. So you mentioned to me before we started recording that you're working on a book. Can you tell me a little bit about that or is it too early? No, I can. It's, it's, um, I'm preparing to shop it to agents right now. So oh. I love talking about it. The book is called You Can't Succeed Alone. 
And the subtitle is why self-help isn't helping you and what to do instead. And so oh, nice. as I've, as I've shared here, I am a sold out fan of personal growth, but often what we believe about self-help and what we talk about regarding helping ourselves gets in the way of personal growth because uh, we end up sitting alone in the corner with a James Clear book or a, or a whoever, Adam Grant book, whoever. And we're, we're thinking, why can't I do this? Why can't I do this? Right. And so it's really a way of, uh, first of all, kind of decluttering a lot of the information overload around self-help and allowing people to get the help they need, allowing them to, it's, it's a process that I call emotional capitalism. So we all know venture capitalism, you know, Floyd Kwame invests money in Facebook and gets 100x back, whatever, whatever that is. But emotional capitalism is the idea of investing love and belief in other people until they can begin to create that in themselves. And there's not the same kind of profit motive tied to it. But yet it's also oddly enough or ironically enough, the way we build profitable businesses by being of value to other people. And so even the way I do a mastermind is built around this idea of, of emotional capitalism. How do we invest love and belief in other people? Because often what we want, and I, I find this as a person in long-term recovery, often what we want is we just want somebody to listen to us, to actually take the time to hear what it is we're working on, what it is we're thinking about. And so to create uh, spaces for people to do that, what it ends up doing is really moving into their heart and soul and causing them to believe, oh, this group believes I can do it. Maybe I can. This belief, a group believes I can create my coaching business. I can launch my course. I can, I can create that product and get it out into the market. Maybe I can. I really like that idea. I'm sitting here thinking all the different ways that that can be extremely useful. Sorry to the listener. Occasionally when a guest is speaking, things go popping off in my head and I go down lots of rabbit holes while you're listening to that guest speaking, just like you at home are. And, th and then I get distracted and I don't know where to go from that afterwards. So I've found this a really, really useful conversation. It's not the normal kind of conversation for this show, although it's probably not that unusual now I come to think of it because I often go these places. But going specifically here today for me was really, really useful. And I hope you at home found it useful as well. I think giving yourself a little bit of latitude with your own identity is a great place to start. And then not assuming that you have to do it all yourself and be independent and allow yourself to be interdependent is, again, it's a very creative approach. And yeah, I really, really like it. I have a lot of thinking to do. But well, if people want to connect with you, if they want to go deeper with you, how can they do that? Yeah. Best place is just at my website, willsampson.com. You can sign up for, I put out a weekly newsletter every Monday. It's short. It doesn't, won't take more than five minutes of your time to read. And then I also, when you do that, I'll, there's a graphic, an infographic I have, which lays out these four steps that I talked about earlier, the think, be, do, grow uh, model. And they can download that when they sign up. Thank you so much. I think I'm going to have to have you back again sometime because I have a lot of places I could still go. And I now, so honestly, I probably need a bit of reflection after this to come up with some sensible questions, because this has been one of these wild explorations that I really, really enjoy. Thank you. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. But before we go, what's one thing you do now that you wish had started five years ago? Yeah, it's building a consistent habit stack. That's what took me time for, for years. 
I would try something and just, you know, become convinced that I wasn't good at it or I wasn't meant to do it. And then I would, that would just reinforce negative narratives. Building a, a consistent habit stack in my life around that one keystone habit, that has been the biggest game changer in my life. And I'm going to have to go away and do some homework now. So thank you for that. So that brings us to the end of another episode. Thank you to you at home for listening. And if you have enjoyed the show, I would gently encourage you to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. And that's five, like the fingers on your hand, not four. If you did enjoy the show, then I would love for you to share it with just one person and remind you that you will also love the Personal Brand Business Roadmap. It's 100% free as a gift for me, 30 pages of everything that you will need to start, scale, or just fix your expert business click or tap the link in the show notes or just visit amplifyme.agency forward slash roadmap. Thanks again, Will Sampson, for joining us this week and to you at home for listening and see you next week.